electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. Today's is with analyst and consultant Graham Copley, the co-founder of Houston-based CMAC. He's an expert on chemicals, having spent his entire career covering the industry. He's been on the sell side at Sanford Bernstein and Macquarie. He's been doing independent research for years now and consulting. And he is here today to talk about two of the most critical issues of our time, which he has unique insight on, the supply chain and the energy transition. And Graham, with that, welcome to the podcast. Kelly, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So how did a British guy end up in Houston, by the way? Um, Job offer, I guess. Um, Something I couldn't turn down almost exactly 30 years ago. Love it. It was a come over for two years. And I've been here ever since. Amazing. And it's not to say that it's that unusual. I mean, as anyone who knows the history of energy knows, there's been tight relations between Anglo-American companies and exploration um, all over the country and, and that sort of thing. But so let, how did you end up becoming a specialist in chemicals? By the way, you were an engineering guy, right? Uh, I left engineering school and went straight to BP in the chemical business, uh, actually in the commercial side, as opposed to the engineering side. And uh, was then pulled out of that by a consulting company based here in Houston and uh, moved over here with them. Wonderful. And here you are all those years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk and kind of dive right into these two major issues facing the U.S. economy. Number one, a consequence of the pandemic. And number two, a much bigger choice that is really being made to transition away from fossil fuels. So let's just start with the supply chain stuff, because you have kind of a unique take on this. You're a little bit less worried than everybody else is about this being a permanent inflationary issue. Is that right? I think so. I think what we've done for the last 20 plus years, Kelly, is really focus on just-in-time delivery and supply chain management and managing all of our uh, production facilities around the world to operate close to you know, optimal rates. And so the system really couldn't handle a 5 6 7% step change in demand that was caused by the pandemic. Um, and so we essentially ran out of room on everything from semiconductor factories to ships. Um, but a lot of that was driven by, you know, what was a, a very significant swing in consumer spending away from traditional services, vacations and restaurants, and towards, you know, all those things you've been planning to buy for the home and now you could afford to do it and you were all living there anyway. So it made a good, like a good idea, right? <laughs> um, and, and that can't continue. I mean, there's a limit to how many TVs you want in a house and there's a limit to how many times you can replace the couch. Um, and so, you know, what we see is that it has some legs to it simply because the services side of the business has become, you know, less certain. There was an expectation that we'd bounce back out of the pandemic and everyone would be back on airplanes all through this year. And of course, it hasn't really happened to that extent. And so the airlines, the restaurants, the hotels are all seeing below capacity operating rates. And so we still have money being spent on 
a sort of overspending on durables, uh, which until recently has kept the supply chain very, very tight. But if you look at the more recent data, um, the ship rates are coming down, the number of ships on their way to sit in the traffic jam of, of Los Angeles uh, is also coming down. You know, if you're an opportunistic shipper from, from Asia, you've missed the holiday season now in the US. So you're only moving material across now if you've got a hard and fast buyer on the other end. Uh, and so we think this will slow. Now, obviously, if the pandemic comes back with a vengeance over the next three or four months and we don't see um, a rebound in sort of vacationing and restauranting, et cetera, you know, there'll be some tail to this durable demand, but we're not convinced it can last. And we can talk in a second about why that is, but I just want to connect the dots for people that what you're saying basically means we could go from having shortages to having bloods. And we're already seeing Baltic dry rates declining. Um, I think somebody with your point of view might say you want to avoid the shippers and some of the larger retailers who might have to cut prices to move inventory in the future. I've actually been surprised that we haven't seen this yet, that a lot of the best performers are still in a really good position this holiday season. When do you think this comes home to roost? Is it post-holidays? It will be interesting to see um, because, you know, we had a scare story from the White House actually back in September saying, buy all your Christmas goods now because they won't be available at Christmas. And of course, we then had a very, very strong um, retail spending number for October, uh, which I think was, you know, people running to the stores and trying to stock up on things that they might need for the holidays. And now you, you saw last week, both Walmart um, and Target said their shelves are full. Um, so, yeah, we're going into a big shopping week this week. We'll be obviously through Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday, if they still exist. And um, it'll be interesting to see how much is left after that, because the ships are still coming in, the containers are coming in, and there's lots of stuff on those containers. So what you're saying is people basically have bought early, but at the same time, there's still a lot of inventory and at the same time, inventory is still coming in. And it's interesting because a lot of the retail analysts we've spoken with over the past month or two, even the ones who are bullish for Christmas are basically saying, check back in with us in January and it might be a much different story. Yes. I think that's a a very reasonable position to take. Um, Now, I don't think, segueing into inflation here, I don't necessarily think that'll be the end of inflation. Um, because we've got other drivers of inflation, which would be energy more pronounced than anything else, but also materials. Um, So I think raw materials and input costs for the manufacturers are going to go up. And so instead of having the pull from demand, we'll have a push from costs. So let's pick up on this story as it kind of lands in your lap. Let's get really granular for a second on some of the chemicals and the you know, supply chains that you follow very closely, how have they been affected by the pandemic and the rebound? And what are they telling you about the state of supply and demand today? Well, we have had a tale of two worlds in chemicals this year um, because significant overbuilding in China over the last 18 to 20 months has resulted in surpluses of durables, chemicals, plastics, you name it. Um, But the very, very high freight rates have prevented China's surpluses from impacting the rest of the world. So the U.S. is coming off what will be the most profitable year, I think, on record for the chemical industry and the plastics industry in particular, um, partly because demand is very, very strong. Um, Most U.S. 
uh, retailers and manufacturers are trying to source as much material as they can from U.S. suppliers because they can't get material in from outside the U.S. And so if you're a, a U.S. consumer of chemicals or plastics, your demand has been exceptionally high this year. You've also had a couple of weather incidents that have shut down production in the U.S. The freeze we had here in Texas in, in February was um, uh, was a lot more impactful, I think, than people realized it was going to be at the time because it did shut a lot of plants down for a while. But, you know, we're coming off this very profitable year in the U.S. and you've got all these producers in China who desperately would love to sell plastics into the U.S., but they can't get containers and container rates to allow them to do it. It's amazing. So let's talk about which companies kind of are the banner chemicals names in the U.S. or maybe some under the radar ones. And what kind of share performance have they enjoyed this year? Uh, yes. Also an interesting story because, you know, the guys who've made the most money are the big polymer producers. So it'd be Dow and uh, Lionel Basel. Um, and then some of the chemical divisions of the oil companies, ExxonMobil Chemicals, CPChem, which is a joint venture between Chevron and um, Philip 66. Um, they've had a banner years from a cash flow and a profit perspective. Their stock prices, the publicly traded ones, have been terrible. Amazing. Why? And that's because the investment community sees this as a peak. They don't believe it's sustainable. And frankly, if freight rates came down, it wouldn't be sustainable for very long. Um, and so there is this expectation that estimates are too high for 2022 and that there's going to be a correction in the market and correction in valuation. Um, and so the stocks have underperformed horribly, particularly the commodity chemical companies um, in what has been one of their best years. You know, the, the companies are trading at you know, three and four times historical 12-month EBITDA, for example. Wow. Um, that's because the expectation, of course, is that EBITDA is going to be a little lot lower. Um, in 2022. So, so can, like, can I go on a side note about one of the things that I find interesting and kind of, you know, not frustrating, but strange about the markets this year is that, you know, take a name we're talking about today because they had earnings, which was Dick Sporting Goods, and they're up more than 100% since January. Now, you and I could sit here and say, this is a, a business that uniquely benefited from the pandemic when people wanted to play outside and be outdoors and bought a bunch of shoes and bought a bunch of equipment and bought a bunch of golf clubs or whatever it is. And obviously then there's not going to be the same level of demand for the next few years. And yet their share price has doubled this year and the chemicals companies are seeing underperformance like you described. What's the difference if both of these business models should benefit from this unique situation and then both of them should return back to normal? Well, unfortunately, the chemicals sit in what's called the commodities bucket, um, and commodities are seen to be cyclical, and you're always anticipating either the next drop or the next peak. Uh, on the retail side, I do think there is some, I would call it hopeful hope, that you know these levels of retail sales can keep going. Uh, but you know, again, once your garage is full of all the sports equipment that you probably didn't need, um, I just wonder how much more you're going to go out and buy. Uh, so, you know, we've had this, what I think is a bubble in consumer durable and sporting goods and outdoor activity spending. Um, and I, I can't see it continuing unless we end up trapped in our homes for a lot longer, Kelly. Right. And even if the pandemic does continue to rear its head, it seems as though people are saying we are not going to behave the way we did in March, 2020. We have to live at least some hybrid normal life. So, 
I take your point, though, that chemicals are part of commodities. And here, let's pivot a little bit from supply chain to start to get into the energy piece of this. One of my hypotheses, if we want to call it that, is that energy prices, um, fossil fuels in particular, maybe oil and gas in particular, are under secular pressure because of the EV transition. Because, you know, we start to see marginal demand for gasoline going away. We start to see, you know, households shifting towards EVs and not needing gasoline quite so much. And that's starting to create an overhang on their share prices. Um, You know, and I just spoke with Stan Major in the last podcast who laid out the bull case and says, you know, I'm way too early on this. And he's I, I totally take his point. But to what extent are those overhangs affecting the price of chemicals, which are often part of the same, you know, uh, poly- what is the word? They're, they're all part of the same stuff. <laughs> um, I, I think you, you've hit on a very important topic here because I think it's impossible to get, get away from the news flow around transition and the move to EVs, uh, more recycling, if you're thinking about the chemical companies specifically, um, but also carbon and carbon footprints. And so if you are if you are actually an operating company in the space right now, things have never been quite this confusing because you're not really sure what your demand is going to look like in 2030. And in the, the capital investments that go on in these businesses, you know, they're looking 10, 15, 20 years out because the sums of money are so high. And the dilemma that a lot of these guys face is that demand is actually growing right now, right? We don't have enough EVs for gasoline demand to start falling for, I don't know, five, six more years, probably. Um, we don't have enough recycled plastics for plastic demand to start falling. Even with the plastic bag bans and everything else that's going on, the underlying growth for polymers is still high. But if you believe as a corporate that it's only going to grow for the next two or three years, and then it's going to turn around and go down again. Maybe it's five years. You still struggle to put that money in the ground to invest in new capacity. In the same way that we're seeing the E&P companies very, very cautiously dipping their feet back into the investment waters here in the US, one, because the ESG-focused shareholders are telling them not to, and two, because they're not really sure what the demand for that product will be within the life of that project. Exactly. So is all of this is why, you know, it sounds to me like you're pretty bullish actually on the energy space in the near term because, you know, these shortages will create price spikes. The people in the businesses will see massive cash flows and they will do quite well, but there's kind of this uncertainty beyond a three to five year period. So does that mean that you can kind of be in the energy names and see a lot of upside? Um, or does it mean that this transition will start to cause significant underperformance with the companies from the price of crude? Uh, you know, I think that the, the industry is going to make quite a lot of money. Um, you know, you've had a couple of people on the show today talking about natural gas. Um, even Adam Parker was positive on energy. Now, I can't remember the last time Adam was positive on energy. Um, but um, we've run out of key energy products because in certain parts of the world they've either tried to cut back too quickly um, or they've shut things down too quickly. The Europeans have um, really sort of rushed ahead with renewable investments um, and have closed coal plants and nuclear plants 
And you know, one of the problems with renewable power is the sun doesn't shine every day and the wind doesn't blow every day. And so you don't get the reliability that you do with a natural gas plant or a coal plant or even a nuclear plant. Um, we found that out to our cost here in, in, in Houston in, um, in February of last year because the wind and solar plants didn't operate through the storm. And that's why we ran out of power. One of the reasons why we ran out of power. Um, so the Europeans are now short of power. They're trying to recover by buying natural gas. There's not enough natural gas in the world to supply them. And so we've seen these crazy spikes in natural gas in Europe. And it's not obvious what the corrective mechanism is, particularly as we go into the winter. So I do think we're going to see high energy prices. Um, I do think the US energy guys have you know, significant tailwinds in terms of earnings, but they also have, with the right incentives, they have opportunities to invest, to exploit the need for particularly natural gas throughout the energy transition. And the US has one of the lower costs of finding natural gas. We probably have the lowest cost of cleaning it up too, because our carbon capture opportunities look to be less expensive than they are in many other parts of the world. You've written that you think the US actually has a huge cost advantage on some of these transition technologies. Is that right? That if we could kind of we seem to be engaged in a war over whether to even go down this path right now. And you're saying that we could look at the economics of it and benefit from these cost advantages and technological advantages that we have. I think that's right. Um, We've done a tremendous amount of work on carbon capture, partly because we see it as a, it's not even a necessary evil. I think it's just necessary um, because we simply can't get to new technologies and we can't get to the EV penetration and the renewable power penetration that the markets need quickly enough. And capturing and sequestering carbon is uh, fairly uh, straightforward. And we have onshore and offshore opportunities in the US Gulf that are likely to be meaningfully lower cost than anybody else in the world. And so our ability to create a clean stream of LNG with most of the CO2 from the whole process removed before it gets shipped, um, and our ability then to produce clean chemicals and polymers, or low-carbon chemicals and polymers, is probably it's, it probably can happen in parts of the Middle East, and it's already happening in Western Canada. But after that, you quickly run out of opportunities. My understanding was that carbon capture has been an expensive and so far not very productive technology. Yeah, there have been a couple of failures. The big headline one is Chevron's failure in Australia, um, where I think perhaps they underestimated the ability to, to both capture and then compress the CO2. Um, and they may also have underestimated the pressure required to get it back down the wells. The projects that are going on in the US are much less focused on trying to put carbon dioxide into depleted oil and gas wells and far more focused in trying to capture the CO2 within porous rocks a long way down um, and well and truly sealed and captured under the ground. Um, and so it's the technology looks a little bit more uh, likely to be successful, to be honest. Who, if I were thinking about this as an investor, is there any way that I can, you know, be exposed to companies who might be financially able to benefit from this? Or how would you kind of rank the attractiveness 
of companies who sit at various parts of this energy production and in some cases carbon capture um, chain? I think the whole pathway to LNG, if it gets the right blessing in Washington, is probably worth investing in um, because the world needs a lot more LNG. And regardless of whatever scenario you look at in terms of um, uh, progress towards net zero, you know, we need to give countries like India and others uh, opportunities to, to burn less coal. And they're only going to burn less coal if somebody will supply them with natural gas. And that in itself is a significant transitionary step. Um, so, you know, from the, the pure play natural gas producers to the natural gas pipeline companies like Williams um, to Chinea, which is the publicly traded LNG company, although Chinea will need to add more capacity for, you know, to really get uh, more momentum behind their earnings. And these things take a long time to build. Um, so that piece looks good to me. On the carbon capture side, you know, what we've seen so far, for the most part, are companies solving or looking to solve their own problems. So Air Products has a project in Louisiana that was announced recently um, to produce blue hydrogen and blue ammonia. Um, Exxon and others are looking at a large offshore project around Houston. Um, and then you saw last week, I think Freeport LNG talked about a project to solve the carbon footprint of their LNG facility, uh, or at least to begin to. So you tend to see a lot of um, companies looking to solve their own problems. Uh, Baker Hughes is making quite a lot of positive noise about their contribution to carbon capture. But I think they're a little bit, you know, they're a little bit like a GE or a DuPont. In that they have really interesting transition businesses buried within other things. Um, and there might be opportunity, you know, to separate those businesses if, if the, the market really wants to pay up for the um, energy transition uh, names. That's very interesting. Let's delve into that further. Before we leave uh, this topic, though, I also asked my last guest about the energy majors like Exxon and Chevron. And, and even though he's bullish on the price of crude and relatively on, on gasoline demand, he said he would maybe avoid those because the refining exposure that they have could be a headwind as this transition progresses. So I'm just curious what you think about Exxon and Chevron and the likes um, as investments for the next several years? Um, well, it comes down to perception, I think, because I actually don't think the refining business is going to be bad for a while. Right? We're not producing. If you look at what's going on on the EV side, it will be, it'll be a while before we start seeing negative growth for, or declines for gasoline demand. Um, we've got quite a lot of investment to replace diesel with sustainable fuels, particularly in California. Um, but again, you know, it, it's, it's enough to move the needle, but not enough to move the needle very far. And if you look at the uh, attempts to produce sustainable aviation fuel, um, you know, it's going to be years before we have enough volume to really matter. So I think the refining risk is there, but I don't think it's there for several years. Um, but I think the bigger problem with these stocks is that every day somebody's coming out of the woodwork and saying, we're not going to own fossil fuel companies anymore. So you've got selling pressure almost daily on the entire space simply because people are choosing to get out altogether rather than perhaps choose between the companies they think are doing the best thing from an ESG perspective or a sustainability perspective and those that aren't doing enough. 
And finally, then, are there other areas of the energy space that you think are really attractive? And you've named some, but um, as an alternative to those names, because they are so high profile and so they tend to be under the most divestment pressure. I think the sustainable aviation fuel piece is really interesting uh, because most of the airlines have made commitments to replacing a certain percentage of their fuel by with sustainable aviation fuel. That's aviation fuel made from either waste or from corn or from some other carbohydrate. Um, and we simply can't build the capacity fast enough. Um, so that's kind of interesting. The, the, the obvious pure play there is a company called Jivo. But Jivo, like many of these startups, it really comes down to execution because they've got great and interesting technology. They've got a lot of people interested in buying their product, but the next phase of their evolution is actually to put an awful lot of capital in the ground and try and build something you know, of, of scale. And so with all of these startups, you're sort of sitting and waiting to see if they can execute. If they can execute, we're in great shape, but if, if they fail to get the plant up and running or there's a problem with scaling the facility or they don't get the specs they thought they were gonna get, then you know, that, that's why there's hesitancy around piling in. And it's also probably why we haven't seen any of these small companies get acquired by an Exxon or a Chevron or somebody else in the space. That's interesting that once they are proven, perhaps that could trigger more deal-making. And it's funny that they're being punished for not showing that yet when we have a lot of startup EV companies with not a lot more than that to show. And yet they I, have... I, I, Kelly, I wouldn't say they're being punished. They're all trading at pretty high multiples. But, yeah. They've just kind of stopped moving at this point. And no, they, they don't rival Lucid and, um, and the rest of the EV stocks. That's, <laughs> that's for certain. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let me move along to a couple of names that you brought up a second ago that I think could be really emblematic of where the investing world is going. And of course, as we know, as the investing world goes, so so goes everything else. So you mentioned DuPont and GE, and we just got a big announcement from GE in the past week or so that they're breaking up into three companies. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak a little bit further to what you think might be going on there and what GE might look like in another three, five, eight, ten 10 years on out? Right. Um, yes, and obviously, you and I have talked about GE in the past, Kelly. Um, and, you know, I think this was sort of inevitable. There are, there are a few breakup and, and some other restructurings that I think probably got delayed by COVID. Um, you know, a couple of guys with grand plans that weren't able to execute them as quickly as they thought. Um, now, obviously, GE is talking about getting their debt level down to a comfortable point before they could make the split, which was always an issue. Um, but if you think about it from a practical perspective, what they're doing makes sense, right? They're separating these businesses into three distinct industry-focused um, independent companies. Now, when you start drilling down a little bit harder, you look at the power business. And in the power business, they have got the preeminent wind turbine business, or certainly up with the best. Um, and that wind turbine business is going to see extraordinary growth. If you, if you look at the um, study that was presented early in this year by the, IE, the IEA, where they basically went through a scenario that would get us to net zero, um, the rate of investment and construction of wind and solar facilities, you know, was a multiple of what we're looking at today. So 
you know, not only do we have, as far as they're concerned, not only do we have strong demand for solar panels and wind turbines today, but that growth is going to keep going faster and faster and faster. And, and when you look at, for example, the number of people that are talking about uh, green hydrogen and the number of potential investments that are in green hydrogen, and most of these are, they are drawing board and they are, you know, press release opportunities that have not yet made it through final investment decision. They're looking for backers and they're looking for government subsidies, but all of them require renewable power. And I think when we start getting these projects sort of ironed out and ticked off, each of these guys is going to show up, the wind turbine producer or the solar panel producer, and say, hey, I need this much power. And the solar panel guy is going to say, get in line. And the wind turbine guy is also going to say, get in line. And then with all these new orders, the solar panel guys and the wind turbine guys are going to say, we need to expand capacity. And they're going to go to their material suppliers. So whether that's steel or aluminum or copper or silver or silicon. Um, and they're going to say, by the way, we're doubling our capacity. We need this much more materials. The material guys are going to say, get in line. Because I just think we're not thinking through the rate of demand growth and its impact, particularly on some of the material industries that are supporting these areas. But what that means for the wind turbine guys is they're going to be sold out. They're going to be on a spectacular growth rate for the foreseeable future. And that GE wind business is probably worth, I don't know, twice what the rest of the power business is. So then if you were looking for kind of the big stock play, it's basically the GE wind business. I mean, it sounds like you kind of want pure play exposure. I think so. I think the market wants pure, pure play exposure, Kelly. Um, they, they're paying so much for these, um, you know, let's go back to chemicals for a second. This time a year ago, people were saying, well, how do you play energy transitions with the chemical guys? And we said the simplest thing to do is buy the industrial gas companies because they have exposure to hydrogen. Um, and, and the multiples of both those companies, so the US companies, Lindy and Air Products, have gone through the roof over the last year. Um, so it's very difficult to see where the additional value is at this point. But if, if, if the investors are willing to pay that much for industrial gas companies that, yes, have a hydrogen story, but also have a high carbon footprint, which um, you know, is, is not um, insignificant as you think about their future, then what would they pay for a pure play wind turbine business? I suspect quite a lot. Absolutely. Then where does that leave DuPont? Because, you know, and this is why I'm so glad to talk to you about all of this. You know, there's plenty of people to talk to about the energy transition and what that means for fuels. But mm -hmm. as we go further down, what does it mean for the rest of the refining complex? What does it mean for chemicals? What does it mean for plastics? You know, what does it mean for DuPont? And the pressure that people are under to, you know, have clean energy is obviously the same pressure that's resulting in glass and paper straws. What does DuPont do? Um, I think DuPont has done a pretty good job of getting rid of most of the consumable side of their business, right? So they're now mostly focused on durables. Um, which means they get away from some of this uh, single-use recycling um, problems that companies like Dow and Lionel Bussell will face. Um, and I think um, Ed Breen has done a very good job of, of carving off the pieces that make more sense to other people. Um, but he also has a really interesting ESG sleeve buried in DuPont. Um, part of it is the the safety and protection gear that they make with Tyvek, 
um, you know, hospital gowns and other protection gear. They've also got the fire protection gear, which is also, you know, probably sit, sits in that bucket. But they've also got a very good water business, very good water cleanup business. And we believe that water is going to be the next big thing that hits the radar in terms of the need for either investment or policy changes because we are running out of drinking water in more places than you'd realize. Um, and That's a pretty you know, terrifying thought. Well, it, it's true, but there are, there are places around the world where there are some very big desalination facilities under consideration to bring you know, seawater and clean it up and turn it into drinking water. Um, you know, that requires an awful lot of investment and in technology and DuPont sitting on one of the leading edges of the, um, of the purification technologies. Um, so they've got a good business there. But if you really want to take water to its extreme, we go back to the world's least popular polymer, which is PVC, um, which, of course, is used in almost all the water pipe in every house you'd be in these days. Oh, sure. Um, I think for ours, water, maybe. Yeah. Water outlet, yeah. Uh, it's, it's the sort of ubiquitous water pipe. And, um, but it's used in siding, it's used in windows, it's used in fencing, it's all over the place. And as we think about water infrastructure, now the infrastructure bill has billions of dollars focused on improving water supply. Um, so, you know, the, the older PVC that sort of got out of fashion suddenly becomes important again. Um, so, you know, there, there are things that are, that are moving in favor of some chemicals and, and against some chemicals. If you're a traditional you know, plastic bag manufacturer or the manufacturer of polymers to make plastic bags, you're under a lot of pressure um, because not only are municipalities banning the use of plastic bags, but there's other people out there trying to steal your business with either biodegradable polymers or renewable-based polymers. Um, and so, you know, you're under a lot of pressure uh, if you're in that sort of commodity single-use plastic area. Are there any other investments that would do well? I mean, it's interesting what you're describing, which is that we need a lot more PVC pipe for mm. the global water supply. Are there some under the radar kinds of ways to get exposure to that story? Or, you know, um, could you talk a little I, bit about that world? I don't I don't think so. I mean, the, the PVC producers are fairly obvious. And we actually I think we just saw Apollo by a PVC producer in Europe um, not that long ago. Um, but the other ones, you know, the Westlake is probably the best known producer in the US, um, but everyone knows their exposure. The other big producer is, is Oxycam, which of course is part of, you know, a much more complicated Occidental story. Um, and, uh, you know, the other large producers are not domiciled in the US, they're in Japan and, um, and Taiwan, um, even though they operate over here. But in terms of, uh, other sort of under the radar things. I think it's I think it's a little difficult um, to identify because you know you get into products like PVC and the scale does matter, and so you know it really is the big guys that are in the driving seat when it comes to production opportunities and margin opportunities. Yeah, and that makes sense. One final question I would love to ask you about, which you know kind of takes a lot of what you've said in all of these different areas and and brings it together with many other changes in the market is you know, should we expect to see a lot more churn, you know, a lot more of companies breaking themselves up into three parts or spinning out high growth energy transition businesses or PVCs over here or recombinations or will they go private, you know, maybe more on the fossil fuel side to just stay out of the public glare? I mean, it, 
everything you're describing sounds to me like the great companies of the future are kind of being either incubated or stuck in these companies whose businesses are going away, or they have a lot of headline risks still swirling about them. How is this all going to shake out? That's a great question. I wish I knew, but I have some ideas. Um, the headline risk piece is certainly there. Uh, and it, it comes you know, from activists, it comes from uh, investment funds, um, and it can come from, from, from governments as well. Uh, and so that, that is a problem. There's also the headline risk from the customers too. If the large consumers of polymers or the large consumers of fuels, for example, say we need this to be changed by this amount by this date, then as a supplier, you better react or you're going to lose the business. Um, now, in terms of do things go private, I think you get companies trading at cash flows that would have looked really, really attractive on sort of historical leverage buyout uh, mathematics. Um, the problem is where you get the money from. Uh, because, you know, our client base, Kelly, is incredibly eclectic in terms of the people who want to talk to us. And it ranges from, you know, large chemical companies to small fuel producers to private equity, you name it. But on the private equity side, what I think is most interesting is there is so much private equity money looking for green ideas and sustainability ideas. And there's almost none looking to bail out oil companies that might be trading at incredibly low multiples of cash flow. Um, so I'm not sure. I think the, the go private option is definitely there. But finding someone to fund you and what you then pay for that funding, um, I think, is, is interesting. Now, in terms of breaking up companies, uh, if we continue to see the multiple arbitrage between the, what are considered the ESG-friendly companies versus the, the ESG-dirty companies, then they'll inevitably be pressured to break things up. And you'll see more and more of the activists getting involved in what are essentially ESG activist moves as opposed to poor management activist moves, you know, looking to play the arbitrage of a breakup. Um, you know, there's been, there is, there's, there's a, a fund right now looking to break Shell up into multiple pieces. And, and I think it's premature. I don't think Shell has done enough for you to be able to create a good clean piece of the Shell portfolio yet. It would be too small to perhaps make the arbitrage make sense. Um, now, these energy companies, Shell, BP, Total Energies, the ones that are really pushing energy transition, I think they will reach a point where it will make sense to carve off you know, the, the financial crisis equivalent of a bad bank and a good bank. Amazing. So let me ask you this final question. Um, can we afford the energy transition the way that things are going? Are you seeing more capital, lowering prices, more companies and resources being deployed that we can do this in an economically efficient way for everybody? Or is this all progressing at uneven speeds and with too little capital and in ways that could leave prices literally unaffordable for people who are lower income? Because unlike cigarettes, we can't just say, okay, the cost of cigarettes is higher. It's great if no one smokes them. You know, people need to be able to afford energy. People need to be warm. Um, and I think one of the things we've learned over the last few weeks, Kelly, is that governments will adapt. Uh, so going into the uh, climate meeting in Glasgow, um, you know, the Europeans were dead against everything except renewable energy. Well, having had a month of no power and paying 
as much as $40 per million BTU for LNG at one point. Um, the European, uh, Europeans have changed their tack and they're now calling for their energy transition plan to include natural gas and nuclear, which was not in the original document. And so they have, perhaps a little bit too late, seen the light that, you know, if we don't do this, we're going to end up with ridiculous inflation, you know, and we're going to end up with civil unrest if people don't have heat for their homes. Um, and so that's, that I think is the trade-off right now, is if we go the crazy route, which is the, you know, we've got to get rid of fossil fuels by next Wednesday, um, we are going to be in real trouble, both from a uh, inflationary perspective and also from a, um, from a, you know, civil disobedience perspective, because you know there's a limit to how much we can bear, both financially and and for lack from a lack of energy perspective. You know, if gasoline prices went to eight dollars a gallon in the U.S. tomorrow. I think people would have something to say about that. Um, and, and that's what's going to happen if we don't allow the industries that we need to operate through the transition. And I think it's where the lack of policy in the U.S. is actually limiting our ability to attract very interesting investment. Since Canada brought in a carbon tax, they have seen three greenfield investments in Alberta totaling something like eight to $10 billion, um, which could have come here if we'd had proper pricing and policy around the value of carbon. That's super interesting. And are they using the tax proceeds to pay out to lower income households? That, that was the plan in Canada. Now, the, the investments that are going in won't produce any carbon, so won't pay any tax. But they wouldn't have done the investments had there not been a, a clear carbon price as part of the sort of math, the um, assumption set behind the investments. Absolutely. Graham, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with before we conclude today? You know, if we don't check back in with you for a couple more months, I mean, everything you're describing really encompasses kind of soup to nuts, the things that we, you know, use for fuel and food even, and, you know, inflation in the supply chain. So I'm just going to kind of turn the mic over to you for a final word here. Yeah, I think that the piece that's been most interesting for me is that, you know, having been in and around the materials industry, the chemical industry, the industrial space, um, and actually looked at everything else when I was running research departments, um, 10, 15 years ago, um, this is the most interesting time that I have found in this industry. I mean, there is so much going on. There is so much going on that's interconnected between materials and energy and, you know, manufacturing and retail. Uh, and there are more unknowns out there. So if you're a company operating in these businesses today, you are trying to juggle with sort of forward assumption sets, whether it's just for 2022 or whether it's for the next five or six years that have outcome ranges that, you know, either double your business or bankrupt you. And they're both completely credible hmm. as assumption sets. Very difficult job. Amazing. Makes it a good time to be in your business, I guess. <laughs> it has its moments. <laughs> Graham, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Be sure to follow our podcast so you can catch every episode at CNBC The Exchange and catch our show weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern only on CNBC. See you then.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.